I always would recommend, you know, error on the side of having shorter shorter amounts of content or slides or screens in a topic. I myself, even in my pleasure reading, I'm more and more drawn to books that have short chapters. I just find it a whole lot easier and more enjoyable to read and review it. I think in learning, when you have relatively short little topics, you feel a sense of achievement and you don't feel so overwhelmed by, you know, long, lengthy lessons. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 275 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This is the fourth episode in our seven part series on learning science's role in a learning business. We're focusing this episode on two conversations one with Ruth Colvin Clark, and one with Myra Roldan. Both Ruth and Myra are evidence-based learning designers who combine a nuanced understanding of learning theory with years of hands-on experience developing solutions. We'll begin with Salisa's conversation with Dr. Ruth Colvin-Clark, Principal and President of Clark Training and Consulting. Ruth has spent her career as an instructional psychologist working with diverse organizations. She's the author of many articles and books, including Evidence-Based Training Methods, and she co-authored E-Learning and the Science of Instruction, both of which we highly recommend. Salisa spoke with Ruth in May 2021. As an undergraduate and master's, I was in the sciences, chemistry and biology. So science has always been a particular interest of mine. And so as I migrated into the learning domain, the role I gradually adopted was that of a translator. So what I do is review research articles, research presentations, usually from an academic professors and researchers. And then I translate those uh, through books and through workshops into practical guidelines, particularly applicable for adult learning. And so I know that that has been a big focus of you taking that research around learning and then making sure that it's translated and uh, available to practitioners to apply. How do you explain or describe the value of evidence-based practice? I think in uh, workforce learning, we're investing a lot of you know money in learning events. The largest part typically actually involves the staff time that they devote to learning events and everybody's very busy. So I think whatever limited time you have to deliver training events, you want to maximize the value of that training. And I think one of the best guidelines then is to draw on instructional methods that have actually been empirically researched and proven. So that, I think, is the main value is to get a return on investment. Well, that return on investment really speaks to the organizational value, right? That they're spending these dollars, they're making staff available, they're allowing the learners this time to learn. Do you also see or how would you describe the value for the learners themselves in being able to engage in something that is developed according to to evidence-based practices. Right. I agree. Learners can get a lot more value from a well-designed and empirically-based set of instructional methods. 
they may or may not appreciate it at the time, but often in traditional types of training, we have lots of long lectures and the learners are very passive. And I think learners will get much more engaged by using the appropriate instructional methods. Do you see more practitioners making sure that their decisions and their designs are backed up by solid research than you did, say, maybe a decade or or even two decades ago? Yeah, I go back several decades, so it's a good question. I think the answer is yes and no. One of the things that happened in the 90s was the emergence of evidence-based medicine. And as an offspin of that, practitioners in the allied health sciences in the training part of it and in medical schools begin to attend a lot more to evidence-based learning. So I think that gave us a boost, at least in that professional arena. However, at the same time, in many cases, training organizations have high turnover. And in many cases, they have limited numbers of professional guidance. By professional, I mean people who have maybe master's or doctorate degrees or extensive experience in instructional design and instructional psychology. So I think in some ways, we've moved forward, but we still, I think, have large gaps and probably an ongoing challenge with promoting and disseminating the concepts of evidence-based learning. How do you personally keep up with new research and developments in learning science and in the implications of that learning science and those new developments on learning design? This is kind of one of the things that I really enjoy doing. Um, I have a list of about 10 to 12 journals. These are mostly academic journals that publish fundamental research. And I check through these journals every month, look at their table of contents, and I have maybe 10, maybe 20 themes that I particularly monitor. For example, the best use of graphics or evidence-based techniques for engagement. And so then I file those. And then when I get ready to prepare a chapter or a book, I can draw on those. I will say this takes quite a bit of time. And I think most practitioners don't have time to look up and read original academic research. And so I'm hoping to, you know, fill a gap there by doing that reading for learners and summarizing that information. Well, it is a great service. I know from having spent time with some of your writing, just how useful it is to have you pull together from these various sources, the evidence, and then spell out the implications of that. Maybe you are already getting at this by sort of saying that a lot of folks don't necessarily have the time to do what you're doing in terms of keeping tabs on these different journals and checking in monthly and reading and figuring out the implications of that. That can be hard, but do you have advice for learning businesses that are looking to stay on top of of learning science and learning-related research? Any tips for how to do that effectively and efficiently? Right. I think there are some organizations like yours that their business is about making these kinds of, of translations. Some of the professional societies like ISPI and also one I'm involved in recently, Learning Development Accelerator, have publications, websites, conferences, online and in-person that try to translate this research into practical guidelines and illustrations for practitioners. So I would advise people to take a look at, you know, books and 
online conferences, websites, discussion forums on LinkedIn that are grounded with uh, evidence-based practice. I'm most familiar with the book that you co-authored with Richard Mayer, E-Learning and the Science of Instruction. And as that title suggests, it really focuses on the mode of e-learning. How different is it to design effective learning for different modes? What are the salient differences when designing for e-learning versus classroom instruction, for example? That's a great question about how best to exploit the features or what we call affordances of different media. The good news is I think all media, there is a common body of research that whether you're in the classroom or whether you are designing for e-learning, you want to apply those guidelines. But as far as differences, I think one of the main things in e-learning is the difference in learner control. So if you are in um, an asynchronous e-learning, you have the opportunity to go at your own pace, to you know go back and review something else. Uh, compared to in the classroom, typically you're kind of going along at the instructor's pace, not necessarily your own. So I think that's a major thing to keep in mind with e-learning, the learner control aspect. Also, in technology, you have an opportunity, perhaps, it's a little easier to do things like simulations, and one of the latest things now is immersive virtual reality, and those kinds of things. So, I think you have some opportunities in e-learning, but the classroom also has great opportunities as far as just social presence. You have individual people there, and you can get them engaged both with one another and also with yourself. So, I think all media have strengths and weaknesses, and perhaps sometimes the best solution is a blended solution where you combine some asynchronous e-learning, maybe with synchronous classroom-led training. Uh, To pick up on what you were just saying there, you know, that all these media have different strengths and weaknesses, I'm going to ask a direct question I'm pretty sure I know the answer to, but just want to ask, so is there a gold standard in terms of of mode? Is there sort of, you know, if if you have the choice, always go with X, you know, whether that's classroom or e-learning or or some other mode? Well, it's interesting, having tracked this, some professional organizations actually have published for probably 20 or 30 years, maybe more like 20, you know, the proportion of use of e-learning versus classroom. And I had some colleagues way back who said, oh, e-learning is going to, you know, overshadow everything and classroom instruction is going to go away. Well, that actually has not turned out to be the case. And some of the more recent data I've seen shows, yes, e-learning has steadily grown in terms of the proportion of its use, but there is certainly also examples of classroom training. So I think what we try to do is blend the best of all worlds and involve if classroom as well as e-learning. And by the way, we say classroom, it doesn't always have to be, you know, the physical classroom. We have technology now for the virtual classrooms too. Right, right. It's an excellent point, of course, that these modes begin to to blur as well as potentially the intentional blending as well. But it is interesting as technology makes more possible. And we've certainly seen that over the the last year or so as more people have been forced or, um, (laughs) or, or had the opportunity to engage in doing more online.
If you're looking for a technology partner to help you effectively engage learners online, check out our sponsor for this series. Self-Study is a learning optimization technology company. Grounded in effective learning science and fueled by artificial intelligence and natural language processing, the Self-Study platform delivers personalized content to anyone who needs to learn either on the go or at their desk. Each user is at the center of their own unique experience, focusing on what they need to learn next. For organizations, self-study is a complete enterprise solution offering tools to instantly auto-create highly personalized adaptive learning programs, the ability to fully integrate with your existing LMS or CMS, and the analytics you need to see your members, users, and content in new ways with deeper insights. Self-study is your partner for longitudinal assessment, continuing education, professional development, and certification. Learn more and request a demo to see self-study auto-create questions based on your content at selfstudy.com. I would love to dig into some of the research-based principles that you promote. So would you tell us about the coherence principle? And then if you have them, I'd love to hear any suggestions for how to avoid the pitfall of, of adding extra material. I think coherence is a real important guideline, well-researched. Basically, a lot of times the information, the skills, the knowledge that we are charged with is not the most stimulating or exciting. And yet we're all really used to being immersed in you know, high-intensity media, games, simulations of different kinds. And so it's tempting to try to you know, spice up or elaborate on your content a couple of really often misused techniques might be graphics. Often a simpler graphic is better, easier to produce, and also more effective instructionally compared to a real high-end graphical interface. Another one is stories. Uh, stories are wonderful because they're very memorable. On the other hand, if they are not directly related to your learning outcomes, they can just become distractions and actually disrupt learning. Another challenge can be with your subject matter experts. Just because they know so much, often they want to provide everything there is to know about a certain topic. And I think one role we can play as instructional professionals is to kind of narrow down what do we really need to know versus nice to know. And so you mentioned the the subject matter experts and that they have that uh, can have that tendency to to sort of share everything that they know and so that then the work as the instructional designer is to help focus that and, and really figure out what is relevant. Do you have any suggestions for how to work with subject matter experts to really whittle away the non-essential and get to the core content? I think it's always a challenge and it probably hasn't changed that much. But you can kind of have a, a radar out. For example, a lot of times they love war stories. Well, war stories can be great. But if you have hammered out a mutual understanding of here's the learning objective, here's what we want to achieve, then you can say, okay, is this story really relevant to that? Or is it a tangent type of thing? Also, you can maybe have uh, groups of people who kind of review the material, and typically you have a certain amount of time, and you yourself as an editor can go through and, you know, cut out extraneous materials given the challenges of time and given that most learners are going to want to accomplish what they need to accomplish in the most efficient way possible. 
So I'd love to hear you talk about the redundancy principle. And I feel like we hear often that repetition is the mother of all learning. And redundancy could be seen as a kind of repetition. So what's the danger in redundancy? Okay, let me begin by just being very specific about what the research has shown and what we mean when we say the redundancy principle. So that principle actually refers to a situation where you have a screen or a slide that has a graphic of moderate to high complexity. And then you need to explain that graphic, which you could use text on the slide or on the screen. And then you can have audio narration of that text. And redundancy, which is to be avoided, is a situation, and you've probably all experienced it, I've seen it on TV, where there's a whole lot of text, and then the audio or the uh, narrator actually narrates exactly those sentences. That's what's known as redundancy. And I think that's a little different from redundancy in which you're you know, trying to review and work in earlier threads into later portions of your course. So this is specifically redundancy in terms of the modes of audio and text and visual. And the reason for it is if you have a graphic of moderate or high complexity, that's going into the visual center of your brain. And then you also are having on-screen text that's also competing with that limited visual resource. And you can also be out of sync. I know when people are reading things on a screen to me, I could read it myself a lot faster. And yet often I think as instructors, we feel, oh, I've got to say something, so I have to read this to people. And so it actually overloads the visual center of the brain. And it's a disruption in that it can be out of sync with what the person's natural reading rate is. So that's you know, a more specific guideline about the redundancy principle. I think that's very helpful. And and so part of what you're talking about there is it's creating the, if we have redundant content at the same time, this audio and the visual happening, I mean, that's putting greater demands on, it's a greater cognitive load, right? A higher cognitive load. Exactly. I feel like chunking, which I think fits with your segmenting principle here, chunking get a lot of lip service, but I'm also not sure that people really understand how to chunk. So I would be interested to hear what advice you have for how to effectively segment learning. It's a really good question. As we talked earlier, the huge advantage to asynchronous e-learning is if you keep each of your content points or slides, if you would, or your topics relatively brief, then learners can control their own pace. And in those situations, learners themselves can segment what you have provided. I think it's much more demanding and difficult in something that is more instructor pace, such as a video or a classroom or virtual classroom environment. One thing to keep in mind is your target audience. So if you have relatively experienced learners, by that I mean experienced in the content and the domain that you're talking about, then this whole chunking principle is not quite so crucial because they themselves can you know, manage greater, greater amounts of instructional uh, content. But particularly when you have novice learners, you want to employ a variety of techniques, for example, using a lot of white space, even on a page or on a screen, 
You don't need to write sentences. Maybe you can just put one or two words there and use your narration to elaborate on it. Your graphics, you could maybe do a build. If it's a complex graphic, maybe you'll build it up gradually, either on the screen or on the slide. Those are the main things. And then I think in general, it's really hard to know, is this exactly segmented correctly? And it probably isn't for each individual. But it, I always would recommend, you know, error on the side of having shorter, shorter amounts of content or slides or screens in a topic. I myself, even in my pleasure reading, I'm more and more drawn to books that have short chapters. I just find it a whole lot easier and more enjoyable to read and review it. I think in learning, when you have relatively short little topics, you feel a sense of achievement and you don't feel so overwhelmed by, you know, long, lengthy lessons. Is outlining and segmenting, are those related concepts and kind of getting clear on the content you're covering? And if you just organize it, is that going to help you as you segment it? Or is it something different than that outlining process in your mind? I think outlining is one, you know, very powerful tool. And it's a good place to start because it's a relatively, you know, straightforward technique. And you can do it mostly with text. And then begin to get clear, you know, first we have our learning objective. Now here's our content. Now let's outline how we're going to break this down into maybe modules and then modules into lessons. I think it's a useful tool. Another useful tool can be storyboarding. So maybe you outline first and then you start to sketch out some storyboards where you're going to show your graphic and your content high level first and then breaking out more detail. I think one of the things I really appreciate about E-learning and the science of instruction is just you can look at the table of contents and it, it serves as a, a review session. <laughs> You're looking back at the, the topics and then the subtopics and it's bringing it all back to mind. So I really appreciate that. And that was actually an evidence-based technique. So they've shown if you start, you know, a lesson or a chapter just quickly with, you know, a quick little outline or here's some major topics, serves as an advanced organizer and it helps with the reading or the learning process. So we've touched on several different aspects of effective learning, but if I asked you to pick just one, what aspect of effective learning do you wish was more broadly understood and supported by those designing and providing learning to adults? I think one of the major understandings that helps us would be to appreciate the limits and the strength of working memory. So we have the two memories, the working memory, which is very limited in its capacity, but very powerful in its processing ability. And we have the long-term memory, which is kind of where we store a lot of the knowledge and skills that we've acquired. And so by leveraging these two memories effectively, that will lead us to a lot of the instructional techniques that we have discussed. For example, we talked about managing you know, cognitive load through the coherence principle. We talked also about promoting engagement. So with engagement, you're actually kind of forcing the working memory to process that information in a job-relevant way and then getting the feedback on it so that you can then correct or improve your responses or say, hey, that's okay, I really got that information. So I think understanding the, the fundamentals of the mental processes involved in learning and how we accommodate those would be a useful design understanding. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you haven't had a chance to say that you'd like to, to share? 
Oh, thank you. I think that you're taking the time here to promote evidence-based practice. It's the more we can all do that and engage in that, the better off we as a profession will be and we will continue to grow. The other thing I will say in general, I mean, research evolves. So some of the things you and I talked about today, for example, the redundancy principle or the coherence principle, those are going to change as we get additional research. We've all been through a very interesting year with the COVID virus and seeing how research has changed, sometimes quite rapidly over time, recommendations and guidelines for people. And that's true in our field as well. So I think it's an evolving area, and hopefully we will continue to have people like yourselves who will be you know, disseminating that information for practitioners. Keep Ruth Colvin-Clark's comments in mind as we move to Salisa's conversation with Myra Roldan. We heard a bit from Myra in the last episode on market assessment and needs assessment, as the importance of knowing your audience is a major theme for her. Myra Roldan is a technologist and learning professional, and she currently serves as Chief Cloudification Officer at Amazon Web Services. As Myra herself says, she does a bit of everything, from research and data analytics to implementing new technologies to creating full-blown learning experiences. Much of her personal work is focused on increasing access and opportunity for underserved groups, including women and minorities, so they can get jobs that will earn them a livable income. Salisa spoke with Myra in May 2021. You know, many of our listeners work with subject matter experts to create learning experiences. So I would be curious to know what advice you have for working with SMEs who, you know, likely know their stuff really well, but don't necessarily know anything about effective learning design. So your your subject matter experts don't have to have any kind of like learning design experience, period. It is your job to gather content for them. So asking the right questions from those subject matter experts. And it can be something, I think, you know, sometimes we're just like, show me all the steps you go through where you can take a more effective approach and be like, you know, what does someone who is new need to know? Like, what are the four or five things that someone that is new that they need to master first? And then let's go down those steps, right? And breaking it down into levels. So I think with subject matter experts, because they are experts, what you want to do is you want to be able to, one, value their expertise, right? But also help them to narrow down um, to very specific areas because otherwise they're going to give you everything in the kitchen sink and then you have to parse through that, right? And because they don't have the, the effective learning design experience you do, it becomes a, a bit more muddled. And so we end up seeing solutions that are created that are just like so dense and so over everyone's head that it's hard for a learner to actually figure out like, what am I really supposed to know, right? So when you're working with a subject matter expert, I say keep agendas, um, take control of the conversation. Um, start by asking like, you know, if I was a new, um, I'm new, I don't know anything about this. What are five things that I need to know in order to be productive, right? Immediately. You can really take control of the conversation and guide the conversation and subject matter experts, you're going to have to really do some serious kitten hurting 
um, or cat herding in some instances, <laughs> right? To really ensure that you're getting the information you need. You can't just like, you know, if you're not getting a response, you can't just fold and say, well, oh, I didn't get the, I'm not getting the information I need. Like have some contingency plans, have some backup subject matter experts that you can go to because most of the time subject matter experts are, their time is valuable and, you know, they may not have the bandwidth to give you the full amount of time you need. So you need to get creative. And so I heard you use, you know, one example question there around, you know, if someone's new in this role or new at this job, new to this field, you know, what are those four things, five things that they need to know? And using that to guide the conversation, you said take control of the conversation. Are there other specific techniques or tactics or questions that you like to use when when engaging subject matter experts to help you get at, you know, that most essential content? Yeah, so that's always tricky because it depends. It varies from subject matter experts to subject matter experts. You have some that just come in and they throw a book at you and they're like, everything you need is in here. And so you have to kind of say, okay, I'm going to take the time and go through this. And then I'm going to prepare something to give you, so you can give me some feedback and let me know if I'm going down the right path, right? And my assumptions. And some other subject matter experts want to kind of control the entire thing. And they're like, well, no, they need to know everything. And so it's, you have to educate the subject matter expert and help them put themselves back in the shoe of a new learner or a beginner. And it's building trust also with your subject matter experts. So, you know, you have to make them feel like they are the subject matter experts and you're just trying to gather a little nuggets of knowledge from them and have them understand that you value their time and you value the expertise that they're bringing to the table. And that's, I, I can't tell you how important that is to build trust because if you don't build trust with those me's or subject matter experts right off the bat, they are not going to be cooperative. What's one of the common mistakes that you see in designing learning for adults? That's a great question. One of the most common mistakes that I see, and I think I mentioned this before, is I see these huge learning solutions that throw everything in the kitchen sink at your learners. And they're so dense and there's so much information. And there's just, it's like they get drowned in like theory and and scenarios. And it's difficult when you think about from a cognitive perspective, right? You end up throwing your your learners into cognitive overload where they don't have sufficient time to actually process the information that, that they're being given to allow them also then to be able to learn how to apply what they just learned. So we tend to throw everything at people and then expect them to know what they're doing. And we all know that there is a forgetting curve, right? And that people remember five to 10% of what they learn. And so I think knowing that, even though we know that we see learning being designed as so dense and thick and like I've sat through learning where it's been an, it's like an hour and they just keep on repeating things and they keep on like going down rabbit holes. And it's just like, you get bored, you get lost, you don't know what you're supposed to be learning. It's not engaging. And so I would say to avoid that, you should take a step back and put yourself in the shoes of the learner. And that's where design thinking comes in, right? What are the obstacles that they encounter when they're going through your solutions? And how does it impact their daily operations? Like how much work do they have to do on a daily basis? And how do you um, help lower that cognitive load? What you were saying about the, the solutions that are so dense, I think that's a really great word. And this idea of creating some space 
for that cognitive processing to happen and for practice to happen, right? Which would also be part of that processing. And so this idea of kind of mm, lightening the learning seems to be a potential way to describe what you were just talking about. Now, my understanding is that one of the things you like to do is engage in kind of newer cutting edge technologies and explore how those could be applied in learning situations. And I'm thinking about virtual reality or, or voice interfaces, things like that. What's the impact of new and evolving technology on instructional design? Does the new tech change how we design learning or how we should design learning? So it does and it doesn't, right? So new tech does impact. When you think about, I think about virtual reality. When I think in 2014, I was designing for augmented reality and then virtual reality and trying to figure out like, how do we design for that? And how, you know, like, does it have a place in instructional design? And I think that you do need additional skills in order to be able to work with the technologies, right? So I think a lot of people get hung up on like, I need to learn how to create in this new technology, meaning I need to learn how to program it when they've never programmed anything in their life. Where I, I really I really push for people to learn how to design for it, right? Which is very different. So it's understanding how the tech works, but not you're not going to build it. Like, I think that's the first thing. Most people who are designing instruction are used to doing everything, you know, end to end. And this is an instance when you're using new technologies that you have to bring in an expert that knows how to program in that technology. And I'll give you a great example. When I was designing for virtual reality, we didn't have the user-friendly interfaces that we have right now. I had never programmed in virtual reality and I was given this challenge of designing, you know, virtual reality experience. I was lucky to be able to work with some programmers, like game designers, that were able to take my vision, right? So I designed this whole engagement with my friend Ann Rollins. And we created like this whole engaging kind of artifact and laid out like, what does the world look like? And you know, this virtual world that we're going to throw people into look like, what's going to happen when they're there. So we really focused on the design piece of it and then gave it to the programmers and a graphic designer to actually create our design, you know, to like bring our design to life. And so I think it's knowing, being able to separate, right? And being able to say like, I'm going to design for a specific technology and I may not have the skills to to build it, but I'm going to work with someone who can build it out. It's project management from that point is like being able to work with a programmer or a developer that can help you bring your solution to life. I think the the issue with a new technology though is the cost. And so a lot of companies and consultants want to integrate these new technologies without really taking into account the cost of development and maintenance and the feasibility of integration into, you know, into a learning space. And so you have to do a feasibility study before you, you decide to use any of these new technologies. I think that's a really great point around understanding the cost of using new technologies and not just the initial investment in a particular platform. You just mentioned maintenance and integration and those things that are going to bring cost as well. So I like the suggestion around a feasibility study to make sure that th there's the 
the cost benefit there, right? That the return on investment in terms of whatever a learning business might invest, they're going to be able to see results that can justify those costs that go into it. You like to focus on access and, and opportunity in your work. What role do you see for learning science and learning design in the realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Okay, that's a that's an interesting question, right? So when you think about like learning science, that's a true science, right? It's about how do we deliver effective solutions to people that will allow them to gain specific knowledge. And learning design is about like how do we design this specific thing, right? And this specific tool we're integrated into like an environment. And so when you think about diversity, equity, inclusion, I think honestly these two learning science and learning design play very significant roles. Learning design is first, like, how do you deliver this thing? Like, what is it that you're going to deliver to help someone learn? And what are the obstacles that someone is encountering or has in front of them that they need to overcome in order to gain access to the specific training? And then learning science, when you think about with learning science, you have like machine learning and personalization and AI driven kind of learning and stuff. Like, how can you use probably something like tiny AI to make recommendations for someone who's accessing, you know, specific learning, let's say on a smartphone over a cell signal. And how do you, how do you ensure that people are able to gain access? Because I think where we fail is that we're always trying to build new and shiny, like the latest and greatest, right? But then we're creating even, we're, we're widening the gap, the equity gap, the gender gap, the access gap, the opportunity gap gets wider when we start to integrate these new and exciting technologies that are not, may not be accessible to someone who doesn't have access to a computer and internet. What do you do personally to, to keep up with new research, new developments in, in learning science, and then the implications that those might have on how you design? So I spend a lot of time doing, <laughs> doing labor market research to understand what are the competencies that employers are looking for in a new employee for roles that they have available right now. So I don't really do a lot of research around learning science and learning design because I feel that that's way too narrow of a perspective to have, especially, I mean, we are, our world has changed greatly in the past year and a half and things are evolving, right? And so I will read white papers and academic papers around learning science just to see what's coming out. How are they, are they taking advantage of any technologies that may enable enhanced learning through, you know, delivery or creating platforms that are accessible or, but I, I tell you, I read a lot of tech magazines. I read a lot of tech news. I read a lot of regular news and I spend my life reading a lot of data. <laughs> so you focus more on the market research. You focus on the new tech developments because for you, that feels like the more meaningful realms for for advancement versus the maybe narrow realm of, of learning science. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And I'll just tell you why. So I, cause I, sometimes I get a lot of hate for this. Um, <laughs> you know, when we think about learning science and learning design, if you pick up a learning design and I'm not trying to knock anything, but they all have the same message, right? It's like, 
If you do X, Y, Z, you should design it this way. You should do this. This is the latest and greatest. With learning science, that's kind of fairly new. And so that's melding technology and, you know, education and this whole theory of like, how do people learn? How do, you know, how do we enhance learning? But I feel that everyone ends up speaking the same language and having the same ideas. It's like it becomes kind of a community of people who think the same way, which results in groupthink, right? And so I like to reach out into other realms and explore like what's going on in psychology, what's going on in technology, what's going on in, you know, in behavioral therapies, what's going on in other fields, right? In order to see like, are there things that we should be looking at that are being applied effectively in other realms? What advice do you have for a learning business that's looking to make good use of learning science and their offerings? My number one advice is know your audience. Don't build a solution looking for a problem. Understand your audience, understand what are the problems that they're grappling with, and then align yourself to create solutions that will solve those problems. Don't build a solution expecting, you know, you know, it's not like field of dreams. Like if you build it, they will come. No, you want to build it around the needs of your audience because you need to be able to earn trust with your audiences you need to have them believe that you have their well-being and their best interest in mind and not, you know, well, we built this phenomenal thing and now we're going to go looking for an audience and finding a problem that it's going to solve. But if you engage your audiences, right, identify your audience and then engage them, have them help you build your solutions, you are going to have a very different outcome than if you just build something and, you know, kind of just focus on like research or science or, you know, where you can say like, this is science-based, but we haven't spoken to our audience, right? Like we're, we're going to find our audience now, but really understanding your audience, that's, that's pivotal. Being customer obsessed for sure. Ruth Colvin Clark founded Clark Consulting and Training and has written many articles and books, including evidence-based training methods and e-learning and the science of instruction that focus on translating research into practical guidelines for creating adult learning. You can contact her at ruth at clarktraining.com. Ruth is generous with her translation work, and so you can find a number of free one-page summaries she's done on academic articles and their implications on the Learning Development Accelerator site. For example, she's done one on the role of emotions in learning. Her short summaries may be sufficient for your needs, but she always provides the full citation, so you can also dig into the original research too. We'll link to those summaries in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 275. Myra Roldan is a technologist, learning professional, and chief cloudification officer at Amazon Web Services. You can connect with Myra on LinkedIn and at myraroldan.tk, where she has some free microcourses available on topics, including using slides as a virtual background in Zoom. And she posts information there when she teaches courses that are accessible to the general public. You can find links to Myra's site along with show notes, a transcript of this episode, and more at leadinglearning.com slash episode 275. You'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast at leadinglearning.com slash episode 275. To make sure you don't miss future episodes, we encourage you to subscribe. 
And subscribing helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate it, and reviews and ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. Lastly, please spread the word about Leading Learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 275, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.